The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, we are in Judges chapter 1. This is the second sermon from the uh, book. It's uh, Judges chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. It's entitled, Upper Spring and Lower Spring. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, who dwelt in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowland. Then Judah went against Canaanites, who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kiriath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Achsa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter Achsa as wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. As I said last week, this is rather similar to a sermon that we did in Joshua, simply because the passage is almost identical, but there are differences, and I hope you'll enjoy this. The cult mindset is something that is extremely difficult and at times impossible to defeat. People find reasons to ignore the obvious or even the facts when they contradict the paradigm in which they live. I used to believe in evolution. That is what I was taught at school, and I accepted it. They are the teachers. I am the student. They know more than I do through training, studying, and so forth. However, I never had a cult mindset against any other view. I just didn't realize there was another view. I'm sure I heard about creation and even read about it, but the Bible wasn't something I ever processed as inspired, infallible, and so on. Once I was presented with the biblical creation account and the obvious disconnect between evolution and creation, I studied, verified, contemplated, and considered. Without much difficulty, I accepted the creation model and eventually completely aligned it with scripture. However, even with the most incredible evidences imaginable, the cult of evolution overlooks the most obvious telltale signs of creation. The thought of a young earth and a creator God simply does not align with its adherence and views about how things are. The same is true with flat earthers. No matter how utterly ridiculous their logic is, and no matter how evident the case for a spherical earth is, they are unwilling to entertain the thought of the earth being anything but pizza-shaped. Mmm, pizza. <laughs> Our text verse comes from Isaiah 1. It is verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. When I attended Southern Evangelical Seminary, the founder, Norman Geisler, 
used the first clause of Isaiah 118 constantly. Come now and let us reason together. Those words float in my mind anytime I am faced with an alternate view concerning something I believe. It reminds me to stop and to think. Some people will simply not reason things out. They refuse to consider any other option than the one they believe. The timing of the rapture is one that will cause believers to cover their ears and shout loudly to stop any other view from coming in and infecting their minds. King James-only believers can be shown an actual contradiction in their translation, and they will walk away completely denying what they are shown. It is as if they never saw it. People stuck in cults will completely ignore anything but what they have been taught. They will even call into question the reliability of their own scriptures to hold to their personal view of what they claim their own scriptures teach. For example, take the Mormons. Paul anticipated their cult 1,900 years before it came to be when he penned the warning in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. But if you show a Mormon that, he will do what any member of a cult will do. Ignore the obvious and continue down Apostasy Avenue. Showing them Paul's warning simply does not work. What is presented in today's passage probably won't convince them either. But the typology is so clear that I hope some reasonable Mormon someday will click onto the sermon, watch it to the end, and say, I have been wrong about my faith. I'm not holding my breath, but it sure would be nice. Lots of great doctrines are cleared up in the typology presented in the Old Testament. Yep. Such great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is a blessing for Achsa. It's verses 9 through 15. Verse 9, And afterward the children of Judah went down. Ve'achar yaredu b'nei Yehuda. And after descended sons Judah. Judah means praise. Hence, it is the sons of praise. In verse 4, it said that Judah went up to engage in battle. Now, it notes that they descended. The last thing noted in the previous passage was that Judah fought against Jerusalem. In Scripture, one always goes up to Jerusalem or down from it. Understanding that, the next words logically follow. Verse 9 continues, To fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowland. It is singular, speaking of a single people. Lehilachem bakna'ani yoshev hahar hanegev vehashephla. To fight in the Canaanite dwelling the mountain and the Negev and the Shephelah. Canaan signifies humbled, humiliated, or subdued. In descending from Jerusalem, Judah fought the Canaanite in first, the mountain. A mountain or har is a lot of something gathered. It is synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. Two, the Negev. The word Negev means south, but it comes from a word meaning parched. And three, the Shephelah. The word comes from Shephel, meaning to become low or abased. The mountain is in the highland area of Canaan. It runs through the whole of the land with the exception of the plain of Jezreel. The Negev comprises much of the area where Simeon's inheritance was. The Shefla is a transitional region. It has soft sloping hills and it is located in the south central area of Canaan between the mountains of Judah and the coastal plains. Next, verse 10. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. 
Vayelek Yehuda et HaKna'ani HaYoshev BeHevron, and went Judah unto the Canaanite, the dweller in Hebron. Hebron means alliance. This battle was recorded in Joshua. However, as was noted then, it is likely that it actually occurs chronologically now. The details in Joshua were recorded in advance for the sake of inheritances. As for Hebron, or alliance, that is further detailed. Verse 10 continuing, Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. Veshem Hebron lefanim Kiriath Arba. And name Hebron, two faces, Kiriath Arba. Saying two faces is a Hebrew idiom meaning before, as if someone is looking back on faces of the past. In Jeremiah 7.24, however, it is used to produce a contrast, forward instead of backward. It says there, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward, lefanim. Kiryat Arba means city of four. A city in the Bible is generally reflective of man deciding his own fate, independent of God. God created a place suitable for man to fellowship with his creator, the garden. Man builds a place suitable for himself, apart from God, in the building of a city. And if you think about it, you go to the cities of the world, and what do you find? Liberalism. You find absolute chaos. The blue states are the ones, or even within a red state, the blue areas are always the highly populated cities. Just what the Bible proclaimed thousands of years ago is going on in the world today. However, a city can also be a place of fellowship with God once again, as is seen in the New Jerusalem, whose builder and maker is God, as it says in Hebrews 11.10. In this case, it is the city of four. Four is emphatically the number of creation, of man in his relation to the world as created. It is the number of things that have a beginning, of things that are made, of material things and matter itself. It is the number of material completeness. Hence, it is the world number and especially the city number, according to E.W. Bollinger. As for this battle, it next says, verse 10 continues, and they killed Sheshai, Achiman, and Talmai. Ve'yaku et Sheshai, ve'et Achiman, ve'et Talmai. And they struck Sheshai and Achiman and Talmai. This was recorded in Joshua 15, 13, and 14. Sheshai means whitish. Achiman means my brother is a gift. Talmai means plowman. These three were already named in Numbers 13, many years before. Therefore, it is likely that this is referring to people groups descended from these three named clan leaders. Verse 11, from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. Rather than they, the verb is masculine singular. Vayalek misham el Yosheve Debir. And he went from there unto inhabitants Debir. The words are closely repeated from Joshua 15, 15. There it said, and ascended. Here it says, and went. Other than that, they are identical. Using the singular here, instead of the plural as in the previous verse, it is a reference to Caleb, who will be noted in the next verse. Debir means place of the word. That is then further defined as, verse 11 continues, the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. Veshem Debir Lefanim Kiryat Sefer. And name Debir two faces Kiryat Sefer. Debir is noted as having been called Kiryat Sefer. The word Sefer is singular and it means book. However, to get the right idea, you would call it book city and thus city of books. 
a name connected to place of the word. You got place of the word, you got the city of books, something's being told us here. It was the place where the scrolls of writings were maintained, like a library today. It was important because of this, of the battle it next says. Verse 12, then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kiriath Sefer and takes it. The entire verse is a letter-for-letter letter copy of Joshua 15:16. Vayomer Kalev Asher Yake et Kiriath Sefer ul Chada and said Caleb, who strikes Book City and takes her? Rather than Debir, Caleb notes the former name when planning its attack. This is supposition on my part, but perhaps they wanted to capture the scrolls in order to get a better understanding of the layout of the land, the structure of cities, and so on, by obtaining any such documents maintained there. So important was this mission that a great honor is offered. Verse 12, to him I will give my daughter Achsa, his wife. Venatati lo et Achsa biti leisha. And I will give to him Achsa, my daughter, to wife. Achsa comes from ekes, meaning a fetter, as in Proverbs 7.22, or an anklet, as in Isaiah 3.18. That comes from akas, meaning to shake bangles, as is seen in Isaiah 3, where it says, Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling, that word there, with their feet, Therefore, the Lord will strike with the scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. The offering of a daughter in this manner is not unusual. Throughout Kings and Chronicles, intermarriages are noted where one king gives a daughter to another, such as in 1 Kings 3.1. It is also something Saul promised to the victor over Goliath, where it says in 1 Samuel 17, So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. As for the prize named Achsa, she goes to, verse 13, and Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. The words are similar to Joshua 15, 17, with two exceptions. The first is that Othniel is noted as Caleb's younger brother. The second is that a preposition meaning from him is included. Vayukta Othniel ben Kanaz achi Kalev hakaton mimenu and took her, Othniel, son Kanaz, brother Caleb, the younger, from him. This is the difference when put side by side. From Joshua it said, and took her, Othniel, son Kanaz, brother Caleb. And then from Judges, and took her Othniel, son Kanaz, brother Caleb, the younger, from him. Only one translation, Smith's literal translation, even bothers translating the from him part. But it's such a noticeable difference from Joshua that it's hard to imagine it not being translated. By adding the word translated as from him, it makes much of the rest of the verse parenthetical. And took her from him. One assumes that the words from him are speaking of the Canaanite of verse 9. He had the city, and Othniel took her from him. As for the words, Othniel, son, Kanaz, brother, Caleb, it seems to place Caleb's father as Kanaz. That is incorrect. Caleb's father is Jephunneh. That's found in Numbers 13, verse 6, and elsewhere. The Hebrew could mean either Othniel or Kanaz is Caleb's brother. 
Hence, it could mean that Othniel was son Canaz and brother of Caleb, and thus Othniel marries his niece, or son Canaz, who was Caleb's brother, and thus Achsa is his cousin. The correct reading or translation is that Othniel is Caleb's brother, and both are sons of Jephunneh. The words ben Kanaz or son of Kanaz mean descendant of Kanaz, and thus Othniel is, like Caleb, a Kenazite, as noted in Numbers 32.12. Saying son of Kanaz thus identifies him as belonging to the clan of Kanaz, the Edomite who is noted in Genesis 36 verse 15. There it says, these were the chiefs of the son of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, were Chief Taman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kanaz. Caleb means dog. Othniel means either force of God or lion of God. The NAS uses a different root to translate it, which renders it burning of God. Because he is the one to prevail over the city, Achsa goes to her uncle as his wife. The meaning behind Kanaz, or hunter, is that it signifies a person who seeks after wisdom. The purpose of the words is to show that both Kalev and Othniel are reckoned as descendants of this Gentile, Kanaz. As for Othniel's great victory, verse 13 continues, so he gave him his daughter Achsa as wife. The clause is letter for letter, the same as the corresponding clause in Joshua 15, 17. And gave to him Achsa, his daughter, to wife. Achsa is accounted under both Kalev and Othniel in this manner. Yet, she will be given a set inheritance within Judah, as the narrative continues. Verse 14, now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. With one exception, the words are identical to Joshua 15, verse 18. And it was in her coming. And she poked him to ask from her father the field. Joshua 15, 18 says field without the definite article. This verse says the field. It is a particular field that she has in mind. The word sut, translated as urged, comes from shayit, a thorn. Hence, it figuratively means to poke or to entice. The meaning is that in her coming to Othniel as wife, she used that opportunity to get him to either ask Caleb directly or he allowed her to ask personally for this field. What is apparent is that he didn't heed her poking. It could be that despite being confident in battle, he was too shy to ask for a favor. Whatever caused him to not yield to her urgings, she was unafraid of poking at her father. Therefore, verse 14 continues, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? And jumped down from upon the donkey and said to her, Caleb, what to you? A difficulty in the Hebrew has ended in a wide variety of translations. The word sanach is found in only two accounts, this one and the one in Judges 4. There it says, then Jael, Haber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down, that word, into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. Now, I get to type that sermon tomorrow. I can't wait. I will say one, one more thing before I go on because I'm so excited about sermons. 
I did the Ehud sermons. I told you about that. Ehud and Eglon, the big fat guy, okay? And I did the uh, graphics for the first part of that sermon last week. And this morning, I did the graphics for the final one. And when I type a sermon, I never remember what I typed, ever. It's just so overwhelming trying to study for these things. I don't remember what I typed. And so today, I did the graphics for it, and I read through the sermon. Unbelievable typology. Get ready for a wonderful, wonderful story about a fat guy getting poked with a blade. It is unreal. It is great stuff. What seems the best explanation of this comes from Adam Clark concerning this word we're talking about, where he says, she hastily, suddenly alighted as if she had forgotten something or was about to return to her father's house. One can imagine the scene. She is being conducted to the house of her new husband. She leans over and says, we really need this field with the water. Let me ask him for it. With that, she just jumps down as if she refuses to go any further unless she gets what she wants. Caleb is caught completely off guard and asks, what's the matter with you? And then verse 15. So she said to him, give me a blessing. The words are slightly different than the account in Joshua 15. Vatomar lohava livracha and said to him, give to me blessing. The differences are seen when put side by side. And said, give Natan to me blessing. The other one says, and said to him, which isn't in there, the words to him, give Yahav to me blessing. So you have to ask yourself, why is there this difference? The words Natan and Yahav both have the same meaning, and they both come from roots signifying to put or set forth. It could be that both words have been used to show that the accounts are not mere copies of one another, even if they say the same thing. In other words, with the additional information and different context, this isn't just a repeat of Joshua 15, but it is presenting a different aspect of the same general information. As for the words, give to me a blessing, they mean give to me a gift. She wants something tangible from Caleb. With that, she explains what. Verse 15 continues, since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. The words are identical to the corresponding clause from Joshua 15. Ki eretz ha-negev ve-natati ve-natata ligulot mayim. For land the south given me and give to me springs water. There's a dual meaning being conveyed. The word negev means south. But as I said, it comes from a word meaning parched. Therefore, the land is pointless to possess unless water is available. In essence, she is saying, for you have given me parched land, so give me springs of water. The word translated as springs, gula, comes from galal, meaning to roll. Thus, the water comes up round and bubbling. Stanley described it in the 1860s, saying this, Underneath the hill on which De Beers stood is a deep valley rich with verdure from a copious rivulet, which rising at the crest of the glen falls with a continuity unusual in the Judean hills down to its lowest depth. On the possession of these upper and lower bubblings so contiguous to her lover's prize, Aksa had set her heart. With that noted, the next words are given. Verse 15 continues, and Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. It is surprisingly different than Joshua 15, even if it says exactly the same thing. It says here, Vayiten la kalev et gulot elit ve et gulot tachtit, and gave to her Caleb springs upper and springs lower. 
The differences can be seen when placed side by side. The first one says, and gave to her springs upper, iliot, and springs lower, tachtiot. And this account says, and gave to her Caleb springs upper, elite, and springs lower, tachtit. Kyle explains the difference of the verbs. The form elite and tachtit in Judges 1.15 instead of iliot and tachtiot in Judges 15.19 are in the singular and are construed with the plural form of the feminine gulot because this is used in the sense of the singular a spring. Does everybody get that? Yes, everybody got it. Good. As for, you got to ask yourself, why would this change be here? What would that be in there for? As for the words themselves, the words translated as upper, eli, it's only found in this account, which is in Joshua and Judges. It comes from Allah, to ascend. Thus, it is an upper spring. The word signifying lower, tahti, comes from tahat, meaning under. Thus, it is the lower or lowest spring. The account of Caleb, Othniel, and Achsa, with the lands they possess, is specifically stated here, just before the naming of the cities of Judah, to show what was rightfully theirs is to be reckoned within the overall inheritance of Judah. The inheritance is within part of the commonwealth, and so any can receive what it contains. But you cannot obtain it by trickery or stealth. Rather, such things can never remove your chains. To have the freedom found in the waters that bubble, you must pay heed to that word. It is the remover of every care and trouble when you accept the message you have heard. And it is not one spring or seven or three. No, the streams are numbered at only two. It is in them together that you can be free. Just these two springs will work. Nothing else will do. Our second thought today is explaining the Aksa typology. This passage follows logically after the previous section where the nations were scattered by language in Genesis 11. However, they were united by the language of the Spirit again in Acts chapter 2. We saw that. It was a wonderful picture. It was noted that the power of the Spirit remains to this day due to the defeat of the enemy and that the Bible is translated throughout the people groups of the world. The passage ended with the note that Jerusalem, the city of the law, and thus the city of boasting and self-achievement before God, which is found in Galatians 6.13 and elsewhere, was defeated with the sword. The word in Hebrew is cherev. That was a picture of Christ prevailing over the law given at Horeb or Chorev. Both are identical in the Hebrew. Chorev, Chorev, same word. In its defeat, the city was cast into the fire. The place where Christ was crucified is the place where the law ended and peace with God is established. The verses today began with the children of Judah, meaning praise, going down, meaning from Jerusalem, to fight against the Canaanite, humbled, who is in the mountain, which is a large centralized group of people, the Negev, or parched, and the Shephelah, meaning low or abased. It speaks about Jesus going forth from the sons of the Lord, meaning praise, he is, one, the gatherer of God's people. Two, the giver of water, life through the word in the otherwise parched world. And three, the one who abased himself in order to bring the humbled to God. Judah first, verse 10, went against the Canaanites in Hebron, meaning alliance, also called Kiriath Arba, which is the city of four. 
It speaks of the alliance of the world represented by the number four, which was explained by Bullinger. It is the number of creation of man in his relation to the world as created. Hence, it is the world number and especially the city number. Think of the followers of Jesus going out into the world of humbled humanity after Christ completed his work. Next, in verse 10, it noted the striking of Sheshai, Achiman, and Talmai. The names are given to explain the position of those who are a part of this joining together. Achiman, my brother is a gift, is the relationship of the believer to Christ who is the gift. Sheshai, whitish, looks to the purification of the believer because of Christ. Talmai, plowman, looks to the one who puts his hand to the plow and doesn't look back because he is a believer in Christ. Verse 11 moves from this battle to Debir, the place of the word. The subject was masculine singular. Thus, it is referring to Caleb, meaning dog, and thus a Gentile in type. This sets the tone for the rest of the typology to come. He's already been shown in Joshua to have an inheritance among the children of Judah. We saw that. In other words, the Gentiles are being grafted into the commonwealth of Israel, which is explained in Ephesians 2.12. Still in verse 11, Debir was also noted as Kiriath Sefer. Jesus is the oracle, the place of the word, but he is to be found in the scrolls as seen in the city of the books that speak of him. Caleb determines to go there to dispossess the inhabitants and gain possession of it. In verse 12, it notes that whoever attacks the city of the books and takes it will get Achsa, Caleb's daughter, as his wife. Her name means anklet, an adornment for the foot. The foot signifies possession in the Bible. She is the reward for the one who obtains the city of books. And the victor in verse 13 is Othniel, the son of Canaz, brother Caleb, the younger. Othniel, or force of God, is also the son of Canaz, or hunter. That was explained in Joshua 14 by Abarim as a name based on a profession, similar to many of our own names. Hence, it is someone who seeks a form of wisdom like any other such profession would. In his case, it would be as a hunter of men, in the sense that he is seeking the wisdom not only for himself, but for others as well. Thus, Othniel is typifying those who expend themselves in the pursuit of the knowledge of God and in conveying it to others. This then would explain why the word translated as from him was added in this verse. Othniel, in type, is a Gentile who is expending himself in order to convey the knowledge of God to others. He took the city from the Canaanite. As Jews are a part of the world, represented by the Canaanite, it means that the city of books is now something that has been taken by the Gentiles. But more, he is also identified in the passage for the first time as Hakatan, or the younger. The word literally means small, lesser, little, unimportant, and so on. Translating it as younger is for clarity. This then isn't just referring to Gentiles, but to believing Gentiles, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. It is to Othniel, 
typical of believing Gentiles that achsa, meaning anklet, is given. As an adornment of the foot, she would indicate open and showy possession. But in receiving her after his victory over the city of the books, he also inherits more. At her prodding, not only will there be a possession of parched land, but there is also a request for and a granting of bubbling waters. <laughs> the whole picture can be seen. Caleb signifying the Gentiles being brought into the commonwealth of Israel, Joshua chapter 9, is also guaranteed the inheritance. That's found in Joshua 14. But there is more. Caleb possesses the inheritance. The city of books is subdued, Joshua 15 and Judges chapter 1. It is the Bible that tells of Jesus that eventually comes under the responsibility and the care of the Gentiles. This was anticipated in Genesis chapter 9. The spiritual banner that belonged to the line of Shem, specifically going to the Jewish people, would, for a period of time, go to the line of Japheth. We talked about this in the Bible study on Thursday. This is how Noah prophesied of this event. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, which is the Jewish line, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. All of the New Testament epistles that are addressed to people groups are to the line of Japheth. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. It is to this line of Japheth that Paul's epistles are addressed. It is this line of Gentiles that have predominantly carried the spiritual banner for the past 2,000 years. Asa is the prize, the showy possession for the victory. But it isn't just a lifeless inheritance that is obtained. In verse 14, the union between Asa, the showy possession, and Othniel, the force of God, is highlighted in the anticipation of something special. She pokes at him, urging him for a particular field. The sade or field, represents the world, as it says in Matthew 13, 38. It is an open place of productivity. Without indicating, Othniel obviously approved because she immediately jumped off her donkey. The hamar, or donkey, comes from hamar, to be red. It is a picture of humanity in Adam, which the name implies. Adom means ruddy, which comes from Adom, to be red. Caleb, the Gentile, asks, what's wrong with her? That is when she asks for a blessing in verse 15. And that requested blessing is, for land the south given me and give to me springs water. The picture is of the Gentiles being given the spiritual banner of what God is doing in the plan of redemption. But if it is simply a banner in the parched, meaning the Negev world, it will be rather unproductive. Hence, she asks for bubbling, rolling waters waters of liberty, as the name implies. With that, it then says, and gave to her Caleb springs upper and springs lower. <laughs> Kyle noted the use of the singular here, indicating a spring lower and a spring upper, and thus two springs. This could be inferred from Joshua 18, but it is made explicit in this account. The waters given to Asa and thus to Othniel are reflective of the living oracles of God, the two testaments of Scripture, signified by the upper and lower springs, the New and Old Testaments. It is these that bubble up and provide life in the otherwise parched land of existence. They have become the possession of the Gentiles. It is the Gentiles who have treasured them, maintained them, translated them, searched them out, 
passed on the understanding and knowledge of them and so on all the way through this dispensation. And yet, this inheritance is still within the commonwealth, meaning the borders of Judah, as was meticulously described in the Joshua sermons. And so it cannot be said that these are denied to the Jews. The commonwealth of Israel has never ceased to exist. It is the Gentiles who have been grafted into it. The word has never been unavailable to the Jewish people, but these oracles have become the possession and the passion of the Gentiles. The mantle of the spiritual blessing has gone to them while Israel as a nation has fallen away, just as the blessing upon Japheth by Noah in Genesis chapter 9 prophesied. This is what is being conveyed in this marvelous passage. Gentiles are not subservient within Israel. And in many ways, they have taken the lead role for a very extended amount of time. While the Jews have frittered away the last 2,000 years, the Gentiles have been sharing the gospel of Christ, teaching the word, searching out the riches of the word, and above all, glorying in the Lord Jesus who is revealed in the word. Understanding this, it explains why the account comes right after the chopping off of the thumbs and toes of Adoni Bezek in the previous account. The world, represented by the 70 nations, was left powerless, crippled, and defeated by him. He was then left powerless, crippled, and defeated through Judah's defeat of him. Because of Jesus, that is restored. It started with the Jews, but almost immediately went to the Gentiles, just as this passage started with Judah and almost immediately went to the account of Caleb, Othniel, and Achsa. In Joshua 15, this same account, noting the lands Caleb possessed, was specifically placed just before the naming of the cities of Judah to show what was rightfully theirs was to be reckoned within the overall inheritance of the sons of praise, the commonwealth of Israel. The account here in Judges doesn't change that at all. Rather, its placement in the narrative supports it and further explains what is going on. God is telling a story to us through his word and he is providing insights into the future, revealing the ongoing narrative in typology and allowing us to see and understand these things. Thus, he is confirming that we are on the right path as we continue. As explained in the Joshua 15 sermon, Asa was given two springs, not three, but Mormonism would necessitate there being three springs with their inclusion of the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. Too bad, so sad for them. God has shown in advance that this is not what is going on in the redemptive narrative. He has methodically been covering every base for us to see what is and what is not acceptable. Nothing is left out, nothing is overlooked, and everything, all of it, finds its place later that is hinted at in advance. Be sure to consider the stories you read as you wind your way through scripture. Don't just rush to rash conclusions and don't quickly dismiss anything either. Reason things out concerning what these precious stories are trying to tell us. Come and let us reason together, says the Lord. There is such wonderful treasure to be found in this precious and sacred word. Seek the Lord while he may be found by seeking the Lord where he may be found. And for sure, he is to be found in this gift we call the Holy Bible. Now you understand why you have the difference between elite and iliot and uh, the other one, takti and taktiot, whatever it was. The reason why those words were different was because you could have inferred that there were two springs only. 
but it wasn't definitive until he gave a difference in this account. And now we know 100% that it is two springs and not four springs or five springs or anything else. That's why the Lord did that in his word, is to make absolutely certain somebody could say, well, maybe the Hebrew reads different or make up something. There's no way around it by putting in two different accounts that say exactly the same thing in a different way. Okay, this is the precision of the word of God. And if you want to know if you're on the right path or not, you just stay in the word. What does it say here? Read your Bible. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Okay, I might have gotten that backwards depending on what I was pointing at. Listen, you cannot know God. This isn't, take this as an axiom. You cannot know God unless you know Jesus Christ. He explicitly said it. He is the one that reveals the Father to us. You cannot know. It is impossible for you and you and you to know Jesus Christ unless you know this word. This is the source of where we get our instruction from him. There's no other place. So if you want to know and have a relationship with God, you must come through this word. And there's only two testaments that are given to us. Not three, not seven, two. The Old Testament, the New Testament. And within those testaments are covenants. Two specific covenants. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic, and the New Covenant in Christ's blood. Please understand what God has done in Christ for you. This is the gospel. If you want to say, am I going to go to heaven? When I talk to somebody about Jesus, I'll ask them, are you going to heaven? And most people say, oh, I hope so. And then I talk to them about Jesus. And the last thing I say to them is the next time somebody asks you that question, you say, yes, I am. And here's why. It's so simple. It's so simple that Paul calls it what? Stumbling stone. Stumbling stone is not this big rock that you're walking along and you trip over. You see that and you walk around it. A stumbling stone is a teeny little thing that you don't see, like when the sidewalk raises up because of an oak tree pushing it up and you trip over it and you break your front tooth like Charlie, okay? (laughs) That's a stumbling stone. And Paul calls the gospel that because it is so small and it is so simple that people work around it. If you want to know if you're going to heaven today, here's all you need to know. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, this is the gospel that I preached, that I delivered to you, that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That means that you are a sinner. He died for your sins. Jesus Christ was buried, meaning that he went into the grave with your sins. Everybody got that? Jesus Christ rose again. That means that your sins remained in the grave. Because if your sins clung to Jesus Christ, he would not have come out of the grave. It also proves that he had no sin of his own. Because if he had sin of his own, he would not have come out of the grave. And therefore, he must be God. Because the Bible says, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. He has proven a couple things to you. He died vicariously for your sins. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came down to dwell among you and me, sinful people, to die for your sins. Jesus Christ was buried and Jesus Christ rose again. If you believe that premise, you will be saved. That is what the Bible says. You don't need to do anything else. You don't need to give money to a church. You don't have to help old ladies across the road, which is a nice thing to do. You don't have to do anything except believe that God has done this for you. That is what the word grace means. Nobody gets grace anymore. Everybody says, I got to do something to make God happy. That's not grace. That's you doing something. That is merited works. Grace is God doing something for you that you don't have to do anything for except trust. Just receive it. 
So please, if you have never simply asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, I would ask you to do so today. That's all that he wants from you is you. And he can't have it without your permission. So please call on Jesus. Believe that simple gospel. You will be saved. And then the next time somebody comes up to you and says, are you going to heaven? You can say, yes, because Jesus Christ died for my sins. End of story. And it is forever. You'll never lose that according to scripture. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is an eternal guarantee. So that when you screw up, which you will, God has already forgiven you in Christ. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 119. It is verse 130. The entrance of your words gives light. And then he directs this next part of this verse to me. It gives understanding to the simple. That's Charlie Garrett in a nutshell. Next week is Judges 1, 16 through 26. It rhymes with zippity doodah. It's entitled, So the Lord Was With Judah. That'll be our third Judges sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I got a question for you. Um, let's see here. I gave one of those away last week. Um, okay. Um, Don't worry. You won't be given it anything. I, this is not my question. <laughs> Listen, I had a very, very busy morning fixing the plumbing out back. I had all my clothes off, and I'm in there digging, and not really, but I was very busy. I did have my clothes off because I was getting really hot. Um, Wawa. Wawa today. Um if you can answer this question, this is not my question. I'm not going to say who because I don't want to embarrass him, but he's sitting right there. <laughs> How many years, and I got this, I got this. Okay, so if I can get it, you can get it. How many years did David reign in Jerusalem? 33. 40. 41. You said 30? Okay, she said 33. Who did? I heard a voice. You did? Yeah. You're off by three. You got it, buddy. Wawa. Best day of your life. <laughs> 33. And in Hebron, seven. So total of 40 years. D you did say 30, didn't you? Not 33. Okay. All right. Okay. It's just because I read that this week. Oh, good. That's why I do this. That's the whole reason why I do this is so you will read your Bible so you can get next week a free Chick-fil-A. Okay. That's why I do this. I want people to read this. Don't trust Charlie Garrett. I, I'm a guy. I'm a fallible guy. You trust the Lord and his word. Okay, upper spring and lower spring. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, so we understand, who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the low land. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron by and by. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath Sefer in a former life. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kiriath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Achsa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave his daughter Achsa as wife. He got her and not another. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field, that cute little dish. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you wish? So she said to him, give me a blessing, since you have given me land in the south, for it my heart sings. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. 
Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the blessings of this life. Thank you for the promise that we have, the absolute assurance of eternal life because of Jesus Christ. Thank you that Burke doesn't have to mourn like the world mourns today. He can rejoice while he misses his son for a season. And someday we're going to be gathered together in the presence of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world by simple faith, by just trusting that what you have done is sufficient. I believe it with all my heart, and I hope every person that hears this does as well, that they will call on Jesus and just be reconciled once and forever. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week was so horrible. End of the day, I'm putting everything away. You know, I leave here and I get right to work and I got another about six hours of work to do. And I was sitting at the house and I needed the wallet. We were paying for something or so. I can't remember what it was. And my wallet's gone. And I looked, every, I, you know, I'm not caring about any money in that thing. I'm caring about getting a new driver's license. Get, you know, 8,000 things plus the beautiful picture of that woman right there from 40 years ago. You know, all these things, you're just like, and I thought, it's nowhere in the house. I checked the car. I drove all the way back here at night, and it had fallen off of this chair and under the chair. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, that's, that's horrifying.